This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to my personal favorite Christmas movie, Love Actually, starring Liam Neeson, Hugh Grant, Colin Firth, Kira Knightley, Emma Thompson, Alan Rickman, and Bill Nye. However, quickly before we get to the show. Next week, we have been talking to you about this for a few months now, but we will be welcoming back returning guest Rob Conlon of the Recruiting Hell podcast to cover a controversial Christmas inclusion, Die Hard, starring Bruce Willis, Alan Rickman, and Reginald Vell Johnson. You won't want to miss that one, so please watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Also, you can still sign up for our weekly newsletter, either by the website in the show notes, you can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can also email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Additionally, did you know that our website has the full notes for every episode of the show as well as the master list of movies we've graded so far? There are links in the episode descriptions of every episode to direct you right there. Check them out. And, as always, please like... Follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. With that, let's just start at the normal question we usually ask during this part of the show. Dad, what is your relationship to Love Actually? Uh, It's a movie you uh, told me I should watch. I find that to be, unfortunately, the case for a lot of people. Now, I'll just say this for my own satisfaction. One of my favorite TV shows, it might even be my favorite TV show, was Parks and Recreation. And the only reason that I know about this movie is because in that show, Aziz Ansari's character, Tom Haverford, apparently makes some quip or some joke at the expense of the female characters for liking Love Actually. And since I, being our resident rom-com lover on the show at least, in addition to some of our returning guests like Mom, love these types of movies, I figured at one point or another, I'd go and watch it. So about, I don't know, probably eight, nine years ago, I think I went and watched this for the first time, and I absolutely adored this movie. And since that, I think I've introduced this movie to a whole new group of people that had no idea what this stupid film was. Yet, for me, I think I watch it at least once every Christmas, if not twice, or at least Christmas season. Let's put that out there, because I I think for most people, Christmas basically is the day after Thanksgiving until probably New Year's. And I probably watch it one other time during the rest of the year. And I think we've mentioned that at some point or another. But to me, it's a little bit surprising, given that I think some people recognize this as a kind of cult movie, that I've had to introduce it to so many different people, including the rest of you. Yeah. I mean, most people I know don't even actually acknowledge, you know, that they know the film. Or if they do, they go, oh, yeah. It's not something that's on everybody's or in the front of everyone's mind. It also surprises me how infrequently this is on most streamers. To be quite honest, 
I think at this point, I'm just going to have to buy the digital copy because I'm tired of every time I want to watch this, it not being available. It kind of will come up in like July randomly on Netflix or Prime or something else. But then when you really want to watch it is around the holidays. It's never on anywhere, except maybe it'll be the TV commercialized version that takes out the whole uh, Martin Freeman (laughs) storyline. Yeah. So then I guess this is kind of the theme of where we're going for this holiday season, at least on this part of the show. Would you consider this a Christmas movie? Yes, because the themes uh, associated with it are Christmas related, which is family, love, togetherness, sacrifice. It's it's people coming together and and I think to that extent that's those are some of the themes of Christmas. I am so glad you put it that way because I am going to use that for, against you next week. You go right ahead. Oh, I know. My definition of Christmas movies has become much more open as time has gone on. I really don't personally care whether you consider something a Christmas movie or not most of the time. I just find the debate to be really stupid and inconsistent. And I know we're going to get into this more with the the difference between Die Hard and It's a Wonderful Life and what should or shouldn't be included as a quote-unquote Christmas movie. But that's seemingly unimportant to me whether or not you care whether it's a Christmas movie or it's not because realistically the people that think things are Christmas movies are going to watch those at Christmas and the people who don't won't and so it's really kind of just a dumb debate but frankly most debates are dumb it's kind of irregardless to where my feelings are at for me this is a Christmas movie All of the stuff that is going on in this has to do with stuff that's at Christmas. There's a Christmas pageant. There's Christmas caroling. There's all this stuff. There's an office Christmas party. I think you can loosely attach this one just by osmosis to being a Christmas movie. In addition to, I know you've made a call to that it has to have Christmas themes or value setting. To me, this is always going to be one of my favorites and thus why I include it in Christmas. But Before we get to that next week, I just wanted to kind of set that up before we kind of continue on. After all, what other movie has Christmas lobsters in the manger? There were lobsters present at the birth of Jesus? Sounds like a Monty Python thing. (laughs) All right, do you have a plot summary for us? Uh, Yes, I do. Nine intertwined stories examine the complexities of the one emotion that connects us all love. Among these are David, Hugh Grant, the handsome newly elected British Prime Minister who falls for a young junior staffer, Martine McCutcheon, Sarah, Laura Linney, a graphic designer whose devotion to her mentally ill brother complicates her love life, Harry, Alan Rickman, a married man tempted by his attractive new secretary, Daniel, Liam Neeson, a recent widower who must help his young stepson, Thomas Brody Sangster, through his first love, and the nearly expired British rock star, Billy Mack, Bill Nye, who is trying to promote his Christmas single back to number one on the charts to reclaim some of the best days of his life. Thank you. Cast for this movie, and this is probably one of the most extensive lists that I've ever had to put together. Hugh Grant as David, the Prime Minister, Martine McCutcheon as Natalie, 
Liam Neeson as Daniel, Laura Linney as Sarah, Bill Nye as Billy Mack, Gregor Fisher as Joe, Colin Firth as Jamie, Emma Thompson as Karen, Alan Rickman as Harry, Chris Marshall as Colin Frissel, Heike McCatch, I think it's McCatch, I hope it's McCatch, as Mia, Martin Freeman as John, Joanna Page as Just Judy, Joettel Ejiofor as Peter, Andrew Lincoln as Mark, Kira Knightley as Juliet, Abdul Salis as Tony, and Thomas Brody Sangster as Sam. Recognition for this movie, one of our shortest recognition sections ever. Love Actually was a box office success, grossing $246 million worldwide on a budget of $40 to $45 million. It also received a nomination for the Golden Globe Award for Best Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy. Although we do know that the Golden Globes can be bought off, so uh, take that with a grain of salt. Did you know? Writer and director Richard Curtis was originally working on two movies. One about Prime Minister David, Hugh Grant, and the other about Jamie, Colin Firth. When the plots turned out to be so similar, he merged them into a single movie. Did you know? When casting the part of Sarah, writer and director Richard Curtis auditioned a great many British girls, but kept saying, I want someone like Laura Linney. The casting director eventually snapped and said, oh, for fuck's sake, get Laura Linney then. Linney then auditioned and got the part. Did you know? Chris Marshall returned his paycheck for the scene where the three American girls undress him. He said he had such a great time having three girls undress him for 21 takes that he was willing to do it for free, and thus returned his check for that. (laughs) Sounds like something you'd do. (laughs) Did you know? The lake in which Lucia Moniz and Colin Firth are swimming was actually only 18 inches deep and they had to kneel down and pretend to be in deeper water. It was also overrun by mosquitoes, and Colin Firth was badly bitten, and his elbow swelled up to the size of an avocado, requiring medical attention. Did you know? The credits at the end of this movie incorrectly list Tessa Niles as the performer in the Christmas concert scene. Joanna, Sam's crush, does all of her own singing in All I Want for Christmas is You at the Christmas concert. She had such an amazing voice that writer and director Richard Curtis had it edited so it sounded more like a child singing. Did you know? Knowing about Billy Bob Thornton's quite unusual fear of antique furniture, Hugh Grant would sometimes flash a piece of antique, which is abundant in England, in front of Thornton just before the cameras rolled and watch him freak out in amusement. Also something you'd do. A fear of antiques? Antique furniture. Okay... Supposedly, this is a thing. I I don't know. Okay. Half-assed internet research. (laughs) Did you know? Thomas Brody Sangster didn't know how to play the drums when he was cast, something that you noted. Fortunately for him, his father, Mark Sangster, plays the drums and taught Thomas how to play them. All right, that takes care of the first part of this. We will take a quick break and be right back. Welcome back. All right, Dad, what is this movie about, or what would be the elevator pitch? Uh, a group of people intertwined seek love. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm on the same lines. Nine varying modern love stories that are interconnected leading up to Christmas. 
I will also make a slight edit that the Billy Mac story has no involvement almost whatsoever with any of the other characters. Everybody else is somehow interconnected by being uh, related or friendship or somebody's working together or something. But that, for whatever reason, is kind of estranged from everybody else, even though it kind of pops up slightly in the course of everybody else's story. So then best performance for you? Bill Nye. I thought he was he was by far the the most endearing character. He was just so naughty and raunchy at times and and uh fun that my guess is, is he had a blast doing that part. Well, it is such a ridiculous character. It's grossly over the top. I, I'm trying to think of it's like Elton John, Mick Jagger, and Russell Brand rolled into one. I mean, this is even before Russell Brand was Russell Brand, so... Yeah. I know it's always been your favorite character because he ends up doing uh, most of the line or your favorite lines, where he has some of the most, or I guess the best written jokes of the movie, but I don't know. For me, while I... And he ended up being a leading candidate for me. To me, because this is one of my favorites... I'm going to go with Richard Curtis, the writer and director of the movie. I thought this was an interesting plot devising and way of doing a story with a bunch of where where you could have an eclectic cast because uh, let's face it, a lot of holiday movies end up having these very charismatic eclectic casts of people you've probably seen in a ton of other things all getting together and being in one big movie. I think Sarah and I just watched uh, Happiest Season, which I think it was a Hulu original. And that one's got like five or six different people that you've seen in a ton of other things like Mackenzie Davis. And uh, I'm trying to think of everybody that's in it. Victor Garber, Mary Steenburgen, uh, Alison Brie, you know, and it just continues on. Kristen Stewart's obviously obviously the lead in that one. But you, you get a bunch of movie stars or at least people that you've seen in other stuff and oh yeah that person's in that oh okay yeah that person's in it and they make a small cameo and to me this is kind of the i wouldn't say origin but probably the most closely associated modern version of this that a lot of people draw from and as a result we've had i think at least three different offshoot versions of this we had new year's eve we had valentine's day and we had mother's day which are all these different types of love stories. Basically, it's knockoff versions of this, which is supposed to be about Christmas. But for the idea of writing all of these things together, for being able to get a ton of different charismatic leading people, probably for the most part, before all of them were big. I mean, to be fair, Chiwetel uh, Ejiofor has only become big in probably the last decade since he starred in 12 Years a Slave. And for that matter, Andrew Lincoln's biggest claim to fame is where most people wouldn't even recognize him for this movie because he's clean shaven. And the other one, he's in The Walking Dead. This is two years before Kira Knightley even popped up in The Curse of the Black Pearl for the Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Colin Firth has gone on to be an Academy Award winner. You really only had a couple of people in this movie that I think you could say are headliners. Hugh Grant and maybe like Alan Rickman and Emma Thompson. Yes. So for being able to put all of these together, make them all charismatic, make it seemingly work, I think, 
I know that the criticisms are often that you don't get enough playtime on everybody's storylines and that the stories seem kind of like cheap and glossed over and whatever else, but I've never really gotten that out of this film. I think you have to be somewhat cynical in order to just not see it as somewhat sugary. And maybe some people's complaint is that it's too sugary, but I really don't want to live in their world, so... You can go back to your Breaking Bads and uh, your Martin Scorsese movies all day. I will take this twice a year on Christmas. All right. Best secondary performance then? Uh, I had Alan Rickman. Every time I watch this film, I'm always amazed as to how he plays this almost as being kind of the middle-aged bumbling guy who just can't believe somebody's interested in him anymore. And that's the attraction. It's not that he's necessarily looking for anything. You know, I've often said that everybody, all men are having a middle-age crisis. No, the middle-age crisis is just that men reach a point where their wives and children no longer have any interest in. So if they, they look for things that make them more interesting. I am almost sad every time Alan Rickman pops on during this movie because between this and I know we're going to get into him next week with Die Hard and how great Hans Gruber is, but that's beside the point. The fact that he passed away already and we only have a handful of his efforts is unfortunate because I think he could have been so much bigger and so much more. I know he's going to end up having the, the enduring legacy among a certain generation and class of people particularly among my generation or the one below me, as being Severus Snape of the Harry Potter movies. But I think he created so many different iconic characters that are boiling beneath the surface that no one will ever necessarily think about. And this is another one for me. I, I think he is absolutely fantastic that it's supposed to probably be a character that you hate and don't understand why he's falling for this attention, and yet there's a certain level of sympathy that I always have for the character, despite kind of falling into this ass backwards, that I don't think too many other character actors would be capable of doing well. I think by the end of the movie, you'd be tempted to hate him instead of, I think the end of the movie is supposed to be a celebration of all of these love stories. And you, you keep thinking... Please, just don't get the, the locket. Don't get the necklace. You know, don't continue to engage in this, this, whatever his situation is. Beat away the infatuation, because that's the normal inclination. We're supposed to judge that character. And yet, it is a situation where he feels bumbling, and you can maybe understand the flattery behind somebody who's paying attention to you for the first time in a long time, but at the same time, he never feels off-putting as a character, and I think that's a very fine line to walk. My best secondary, though, I went with uh, Hugh Grant, actually. And this is a weird one for me. I almost can't stand Hugh Grant in most movies. Sarah and I just watched Notting Hill while I was in the hospital. He's abysmal in that movie, and that's a trash rom-com, which I almost never say about rom-coms. But he's just so ridiculous in almost all of them. He's almost unbelievable. And yet in this one, where he's mealy-mouthed and he's unsure of himself, it seems to work. I think Hugh Grant's best roles are when 
he can lead without necessarily having to have a significant amount of screen time. And realistically, the prime minister storyline is probably the biggest one of this entire movie and is kind of the backbone by which everybody else kind of revolves around. Because every time you don't know where to go with the story or when one story ends, you now pop back into whatever the prime minister's doing with that situation. I don't know why it works. I just know that for whatever reason, this is probably his most charismatic movie. And he does a good job for whatever reason compared to everything else that I think I've seen him in. So for me, it, it's one of those where somebody occasionally just surprises you, but it's uh, his movie for me. Most charismatic then? I had Hugh Grant for much of the same reasons you put down. He, he The one thing that makes him... Uh, a bankable star to some extent. It's not his acting because his acting at times is rather shallow, but he just has this presence on the screen, his looks, his mannerisms and such that just come across well. And I think that's why he's been able or why he continues to be cast in movies is because of that presence. I've never thought he was a great actor. And I thought uh, most of his films are a little on the weak side but he does have that presence. Yeah, this is probably a really good category to have him in. I didn't go with him for one particular reason. I went with the guy who I thought was like Kirk Gibson in the 88 World Series. The guy who I pointed out immediately when he came on screen, oh, this is a guy coming in on an absolute heater for about two scenes, and he makes the movie. (laughs) And it's because for once, at least at this period of time, Rowan Atkinson was not being the bean. Yes, he was being a little bit bumbling, but apparently the concept of this character was supposed to be that it was like an angel that just kind of came down and touched people's lives because he's only in two scenes of the entire movie. But just the gift box alone and the (laughs) gift wrapping is just great comedy. I I don't know how you can watch that without thinking Rowan Atkinson is one of the most talented comedians that you've probably ever seen, at least from a, oh, what, physical comedy standpoint? I just, I can't say enough good things about that one scene just for the amount of things that he has to do. Oh, this is so much more. What is that? A bloody sprig of holly? Just the interplay between him and Alan Rickman, I could probably watch that scene over and over and over. And it's supposed to be one of the most tense, and yet he makes it one of the most fabulous. Yeah, I I, I agree. He is hilarious. I, to be honest, I mean, I've never been a big fan of Mr. Bean. I thought that uh, I think Rowan Atkins is best when he uh, has the ability to be either a, a just an, a rather annoying person or an acerbic. I still love Black Adder much more than I do Mr. Bean because I, I just I like him as being snarky. Mr. Bean is a more modernized version of Chaplin and is a lot of the problems that I have with the Tramp character. It's very silent. It's a lot of physical humor and stuff that I just don't have as much of an appreciation for. You can kind of look along the same lines of what Peter Sellers did in the Pink Panther movies as being somewhat of a physical comedian as well. And that's just never rang true for me as far as hitting my funny bone. I agree with you wholeheartedly that when he's being incredibly acerbic and yet sometimes constantly gets egg on his face, Blackadder being the number one culprit of that, 
I think is where he's the, at his most talented. So as far as scenes, this also might be one of the largest collection of different scenes that I nominated because, again, I love this movie and it would be hard not to nominate probably every one of the scenes from this because this is short, it's choppy, there are so many different scenes for a two-hour and 15-minute movie. I just, I, I think I tried to trim it down, but there were a lot of them I didn't necessarily think I could take out, per se. I'll just start with the top, the recording session to open it up. Yes, you kind of get dropped into this kind of movie world and you have no idea what's going on, but there are at least two or three key scenes that are good for the setup and yet are funny. The recording session where he's just basically intersprinkling Christmas into the the song he changes love to Christmas, I, it tells you exactly what you need about know about this movie and about the Bill Nye character well before you get into the heart. Peter and Juliet's wedding, just a nice little scene. Again, it's somewhat preamble. It's not as unusual as the funeral scene, which is also taking place of that like simultaneously and you don't exactly know how these are connected or not connected but it's again setting up a lot of the plot line of this movie the agony of love the first one where we get liam neeson finally connecting with his stepson and you know what is your true problem well i'm in love okay that's not that big a deal what's worse than being in the agony of love (laughs) you know and it's actually out of the mouths of babes just one of those things. Radio Watford, the <laughs> interview, and I, I have one of the uh, quotes nominated below, but yeah, there, there's a great chemistry to that whole section. And that's like Pete Bill Nye just deciding to be rock star Bill Nye. Yes. Uh, Into the Pond, just because, again, while it has to be subtitled, that is actually a really good romantic moment between Jamie and his, I guess, maid, Aurelia. And while that plot line is probably the one that is the most stretched, that somehow these two just randomly fall in love because they don't understand each other, but they drive together once a day for like, I don't know, what would you say? It's about four weeks. That uh, at least you give something to that backstory that isn't necessarily there. And it does make for a good climactic scene when he goes after her later on in the movie. The prime minister confronts the president. Great drop in by Billy Bob Thornton, but it is kind of weird that he had an antique aversion. (laughs) But I think if you asked most Britons uh, what their favorite scene of the movie is, it's the British Prime Minister going after the President in a news conference. Because I think it's what they all wish the Prime Minister would occasionally do. Yes. Gift wrapping. Again, we just talked about that, but the Rowan Atkinson drop-in, I think it's just absolutely classic. Uh, Sarah takes Carl home. I think it's by far Laura Linney's best scene, and clearly the one I think that is the most tragic, if you ask anyone during the course of this film. I'm glad that it's done probably about two thirds of the movie through instead of near the end because of the nature of it. I think it's one of the more difficult scenes to digest in a movie that's somewhat sugary most of it. But I think it's important to the depth that I think most people criticize is not there in this movie. I would actually point to this scene as being one that's a little bit bigger. Say it's carolers. Again, I think this is the one that probably is the most memeable in modern 
times, if anybody picks out as far as indelible moment, I think they probably highlight this one. And it's the one where Andrew Lincoln is playing the radio and does the cue cards and all of that stuff. Uh, I think that one has been done to death on and on and on. It's been homaged in a ton of different TV shows. I think they had an uh, SNL skit at one time that concerned this one. Just on a, a writing standpoint, this is probably the most classic of any of the scenes. Off to Wisconsin. I put this one there because not only is it just absolutely asinine and why its inclusion in this movie makes no sense, but the fact that they that this guy just randomly flies to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, drops into a bar, and then sees, what is it, four, five drop-dead gorgeous women is ridiculous, but gives an extra bit of satisfaction to us since it's Wisconsin, even though we know for sure that that would never happen. Well, hold on. I have seen five or six gorgeous girls in a bar. I was usually intoxicated and it was near bar time, but I did see them then. But they had to share warmth and sleep naked together? (laughs) Yeah. The one place that I would give that scene credence is uh, the American girl's infatuation with British accents. Yes. Next scene, the dodgy end. Nothing is funnier than watching Hugh Grant just stumble around knocking on random doors and ending up popping up around other characters during the course of this because they all live in the dodgy end. Then second to last here, I have the Christmas pageant. Again, the, for lack of a better term, pageantry of that scene and all of the characters basically coming together for this children's concert and then culminating in both the Sam and Joanna storyline, and then finally the David and Natalie storyline, to me is kind of, I wouldn't say it's the climax per se, because I think there's still a lot after this, especially the last scene I had, the airport chase. But to me, this is kind of like the soft climax, where a lot of things kind of come together, because it's about the point where the Colin Firth storyline reaches a final resting place, this one kind of reaches its climax and you get kind of the ramp down off. of it. And then finally the airport chase, because you have, of course have to have a cliche rom-com airport chase during the middle of this movie. So best scene out of those, or did I miss any? I know that was a lot. No, I think you covered everything. I think you probably left out maybe one or two scenes of the entire film. I was going to say, I mean, it's kind of hard not to, again, my love for this movie is profound and it's really hard for me not to basically just say best scene, the movie. Yes. So, all right. Best scene out of any of those that I nominated. I I like uh, say it's carolers. That's one of my favorite scenes. Although I do like the Hugh Grant knocking on the doors, looking for Natalie. I, I would say that it would be hard. I'd be hard pressed to, uh, to pick one of the two. I'm going to go with best scene being the Christmas pageant. Again, I really liked the build up to that whole moment because you have to have the dodgy end scene with Hugh Grant knocking on the doors and you have to have the whole stepson, stepfather relationship and the drumming that all leads into that. And it seems like there are at least three or four major storylines that have to conclude at that moment in in the story. Yes, there is the airport chase afterwards, but it kind of feels like a ramp down after that. So if I think for the execution and the buildup and the writing to get to that point, I think that to me is probably the best scene. 
Favorite scene for me, probably Radio Watford. It's got some of the best jokes of the entire movie. And it is also probably one of the most realistic about who their character really is. When I was younger, I was fucked up, a drug addict, and now I'm wrinkly and alone. I'm paraphrasing. I don't have the exact line in front of me. But for somebody to be that ridiculously honest in that moment is a little bit telling, but also basically says that the Bill Nye character is not afraid to basically say anything that's on his mind. Yeah. And then sets up that great joke that we're going to have in Best Lines here in a minute. Favorite scene for you? I I would, again, go with both of them. I'm hard-pressed, the two that I've already named. Fair enough. Most indelible, then I'll go to say it's Carolers. I, I think that is shared among a lot of people. I don't think it's the first thing I personally think of when I see this movie, but given the amount of things that have been referring back to this or homage or homaged it directly. I think this is probably by far the most indelible from a general perspective, as opposed to just my own. I would agree. I mean, that particular scene in and of itself is what every guy who's uh, had an unrequited love feels. Absolutely. Been there many, many times. Yeah. Oh, well. It's the nature of the game. All right, before we get into the rest of the show or the last half here, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Thank you for rejoining us. All right, Dad, before we get into Best Funniest Lines, do we have anyone to remember this week? Uh, Yes, we have several, actually. Arlene Dahl, uh, actress 96. She was a journey to the center of the earth a Southern Yankee in Reign of Terror. David Gulphill, uh, 67, was in Crocodile Dundee. Tommy Lane uh, was in Live and Let Die and Shaft. Uh, Lisa Brown, soap opera actress, As the World Turns in Guiding Light. And Eddie Mecca, TV actor and did some other things. Uh, Laverne and Shirley was his big claim to fame, but he also had a part in uh, Catch Me If You Can. I can't say that I have any familiarity with any of these people, but that is somewhat to be expected given what you named uh, some of their roles for, although I guess I'd have to look up a few of them just to see what they did. But as we kind of head into Christmas and kind of January, that tends to be where we lose a lot of people all of a sudden. I think it's one of the highest rates of mortality during the year is kind of the Christmas season and then the post-Christmas season. So, unfortunately, I think we may see a few of the more notable stars or at least people who are a little bit more connected with uh, as we kind of go along. But certainly, we want to remember all of these people for their contributions, uh, whether we have a familiarity or relationship with them at all. It's just always important to make sure that everybody is recognized for their work and contributions and what they've been able to give us, especially as we spend time. I know a lot of people use the Christmas season as something to watch lots of holiday movies or enjoy certain forms of entertainment such as this. And I know from talking with our mutual friend who has a son-in-law who works at Netflix that Netflix specifically makes sure a week before and a week after Christmas, they do not touch anything because they don't want to interrupt people's watching habits during the Christmas season, given how much that is. So 
for anything that you're watching during this Christmas season or anything that you may or may not be enjoying. And I know both of us would have a long list of recommendations, given that I was uh, in the hospital for at least a few days this week and the better part of this uh, last week. I have a few more recommendations that I normally would, but was able to catch up on a few things. Just take time to at least appreciate the work and artistry of the people who put this together, not even just those that appear on screen, but the writers, the cinematographers, the directors, the actors, etc., to all of the staff people that keep the lights on and the wheels churning during this holiday season. And this, frankly, this post-season of Thanksgiving that we have now been a part of, just to provide ourselves a little bit of joy and levity when you can't stand your family. And so we take a moment here to remember them all with a moment of silence. Thank you. All right, best funniest lines then. First one up for me. Sam, the thing about romance is people only get together right at the very end. Billy Mac, don't buy drugs. Become a pop star and they'll give them to you for free. I love that one. Just so classic. The delivery on that is so... Uh, amazing, but uh, Harry, Christmas shopping, never an easy or pleasant task. Prime Minister, well, you, uh, to Natalie, you, well, you could have said fuck, and then we'd uh, been in real trouble. Natalie said, yes, sir, I did have an aw- uh, awful premonition that I was going to fuck up on the first day. Oh, piss. Does everybody sound like Oliver Twist? Yes. I see. Okay. Daniel, the general wisdom is that, in the end, there isn't just one person for each of us. Emma Thompson's character, uh, Karen, the trouble with being the Prime Minister's sister is, it does put your life in rather harsh perspective. What did my brother do today? He stood up and fought for his country. And what did I do? I made a paper mache lobster head. David, and pretty much the calling card for this entire movie, general opinions starting to make out that we live in a world of hatred and greed. But I don't see that. It seems to me that love is everywhere. Often it's not particularly dignified or newsworthy, but it's always there. When the planes hit the Twin Towers, as far as I know, none of the phone calls from the people on board were messages of hate or revenge. They were all messages of love. If you look for it, I've got a sneaky feeling you'll find that love actually is all around. Colin Firth's character, Jamie, sometimes things are so transparent they don't need evidential proof. Sam and Daniel. Girls love musicians, don't they? Even the really weird ones get girlfriends. That's right. Meatloaf definitely got laid at least once. For God's sake, Ringo Starr married a Bond girl. Which doll should we give Daisy's little friend Emily? The one that looks like a transvestite or the one that looks like a dominatrix? Really stumble on the dominatrix part. Well, it's rather intimidating. Billy and Mikey. Ask me anything you like. I'll tell you the truth. Best shag you've ever had. Britney Spears. No, only kidding. She was rubbish. (laughs) Uh, uh, We may be a small country, but we're a great one, too. The country of Shakespeare, uh, Churchill, the Beatles, Sean Connery, Harry Potter, David Beckham's right foot, David Beckham's left foot. Come to that. I'm out. See, I don't think I have anything further. Oh, Emma Thompson, Karen, get a grip. People hate sissies. No one's ever going to shag you if you cry all the time. All right, do you have anything else? Otherwise, it's Stanley Rubric time. 
Nope, let's get to it. All right, Legacy. Uh, since this is one of my favorites, I'm going to go first. For me, this is a two and a half for the industry. And realistically, I gave it probably a point up just solely on the back of we had at least three different movies that have all tried to take this formula and try and redo it all to rather minuscule effect. We had Valentine's Day, we had Mother's Day, and we had New Year's Eve. Why we needed to make movie about each one of these holidays is beyond me, given that this was never really about being a holiday movie, but rather putting together love stories and not just these varied tales of uh, holiday excursions. It, it makes absolutely no sense, and I don't think I've seen more than one of those. But the fact that we made them, the fact that there were a lot of big names in them, and the fact that at least some of the industry people are well aware of this movie and have referenced it or homage certain parts of it, as we've already mentioned, I'll give it a two and a half. I don't think I could go much beyond that because, well, I mean, the fact that I constantly have to share this with people and introduce it to a new set of people, to me, says that this is not necessarily one of the biggest things that has ever been concocted. That being said, the fact that it is starting to take on a certain life as a Christmas staple in certain places, I wouldn't say that among Midwesterners it's ever going to be that, but maybe some of the coastal people and those that are in the UK, maybe a couple of other European countries, I think this is a much bigger movie. I like the fact that I'm able to introduce new people to this all the time and that this isn't necessarily the biggest or most well-known movie that everybody already has an opinion on, but the fact that I have to constantly introduce it to new people, I'm going to go with a 3.5. That adds up to a 6 for my Legacy score. What did you have down? Legacy industry, eh. I went with a 2 simply because I don't know. Yes, there's been these attempts, but it's not like it's been something that there's been a strong tendency to do on a regular basis. It hasn't had a big impact on how they do holiday movies in general. Uh, it's a film that uh, a certain group of people really like, and a large portion of, of the general public doesn't even know. So I went with a, a two for the industry, and I went with a 2.5 for the uh, public for uh, uh, 6.5. All right, so that's a 5.25 average between us. One of the things that I guess I left out in my scoring that I think should be noted is I think some of these overly sugary movies, and I know this isn't necessarily the origin point for a lot of these, but to me, this is a better Lifetime or Hallmark movie that's a little bit better done and has a better cast. And these or those movies, given the fact that there's at least 12 of them on a day, on any one of those channels during this time of the year, this kind of gave somewhat of the license to do that. I, I don't necessarily think that you'd be doing repeat copies of these other movies seven to ten years later if there wasn't some type of audience for them, one, and two, that there was at least some money to be made for limited roles for all of its major casting. So I do think that this has tentacles, but I don't know if anyone would necessarily say that this is the origin point, and thus that you could necessarily connect and place a whole bunch of other things on top of it as a result. I just do think that this has some effect, but it's very minimal, if that makes any sense. All right, impact significance. 
given that all of those movies, I think the first of them to come out was Valentine's Day, and that wasn't until 2011. It falls outside of our normal five-year window on this. And the reviews that I all saw, some of them were okay, but they it, like when the best reviews are basically, oh, it was fine as far as the critics go. Apparently, you need to like shoot somebody or have a drug problem or be exploring some really novel thing in order for it to be a good movie, according to critics, basically, anymore. Basically, if Martin Scorsese did a Christmas movie, the <laughs> the industry was just never going to enjoy this one. I think they recognized that it made a good amount of money, given that we talked about the budget for this was 40 to $45 million, and it made $200 million more than that projectedly, at least, worldwide. I think you have to take a little bit of recognition to that, but the critic reviews really dragged down the industry score in this one. I'm going to go with a 1.5. The audience, the fact that there was a box office, that it did at least marginally well comparatively. I mean, we don't have a lot of movies that do that well that are this kind of original concept that are very piecemeal, that star an eclectic cast, that don't necessarily have major headliners. Yes, Hugh Grant maybe, but... Outside of that, I don't think there was any one major draw. I mean, this is, again, Liam Neeson before Taken. This is Colin Firth before he won an Oscar. This is a lot of these British characters and British uh, actors before they hit their, uh, I guess, peak of their careers. So for me, I ended up going with a three for the audience on the back of it had at least a strong showing in the cult form version of this and in a box office sense. So I went with a 4.5 overall. What'd you have? I had for the industry at a one. Fair. I mean, it, there just was nothing. I mean, they kind of, this was just a, uh, to a lot of the critics was just schlock entertainment. Uh, but it did draw well. And I think it drew well, especially in Britain. For that reason, I went with a four for uh, that because, I mean, it made almost, uh, what was it, like eight times its budget? Probably closer to six. But okay. still, I mean, that's that's an outsized. That's significant. You know, yeah. I mean, this was something that people wanted to see and they, at the time, enjoyed. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't have had that box office draw. So I went, so I give it a five. All right. So then that's a 4.75 between us. All right. Novelty then. The story device is the only major novelty here, but it doesn't raise the novelty score very far for me. There is some racial diversity among the cast, and I guess that goes a little bit for me, but it certainly goes through different forms of loving relationships. To me, that's where this movie, as far as not only a devising, but a novelty aspect, actually succeeds in its depth a little bit more than some of the other, let's say, rom-coms. And I know that we've kind of carried forth, but at least from, I, I know that like Modern Family got a lot of critical reception from the basis that they understood or at least made referential credit to a lot of different relationships that you wouldn't otherwise have. In this one, just for example, we have a stepson and a stepfather after the mother is widow or passes away. We have a brother-sister with the brother being mentally ill. We have office relationships in at least two to three different cases. We have an unrequited love story, we have a love across languages story, and we have a platonic friendship story. Now, some of these are a little bit more surface level than I think we'd be willing to get into today, but this was also almost 20 years ago. 
And it wasn't at the place that we are now where in the last decade, we've really made overtures into what different relationships are defined by and what type of relationships are acceptable, at least in film and TV. For example, today, we almost would assuredly have a homosexual relationship would be a minimum have to be one of the different storylines if this were remade. You'd have to have at least a multi-racial different aspect part of this movie. And I think there are probably two other different like token relationships that you wouldn't otherwise think of that would have to be across this one that we don't see in this one. Frankly, 90% of the cast of this movie is white and the black characters are relegated to saying bugger off during the caroler scene or please uh, step into a better lighting so we can see your breasts better. I mean, that's (laughs) the diversity of the cast right now. We did have an interrelationship or interracial marriage in this one, which I guess is somewhat significant for 2003-ish. Aren't you really blending novelty and classicness now? Yeah, I know. And But all of this is to basically say it's not really novel to the rom-com. It's just a better version of a Hallmark movie that we'd have on now. So I ended up with a six. For most of the same reasons, I, I gave it a seven because I thought it was a, a more novel approach and how to blend multiple stories. It was kind of like... Well, you wouldn't know this show, but it was a popular show in the early 70s called Love American Style, and it was short little 10 to 15 minute segments uh, about a love story. And, you know, each was individual. And it kind of has that aspect of it, but they found a way to blend them to, you know, most of them together, to tie them together. So I went with a with a seven for novelty for that reason. Going on to classicness, I think most of the things you said... Just before we get to classicness, uh, I just want to say the average then would be a 6.5 between us. So go ahead. With the classicness, most of the things you said, I mean, at the time frame, it was quite unique to see an interracial marriage. The only... I gave it a, a cup or a little bit down because... I don't know if at the present time the prime minister can uh, end up having a relationship with uh, like uh, somebody like a junior staffer anymore without it being highly uh, suspect. At best being suspect. That was actually one of my questions or remaining questions that I'll just kind of throw out right now. How big would the tabloids be? (laughs) Like the amount of stories that you'd have, she's not running up to you and like basically groping you at the airport with all of the security around. That's just not happening. Yeah. Yeah. So I went with an eight for classiness for those reasons. Oh, wow. Okay. Maybe I may be a little bit too hard on this because I actually went with a six. Well, you know, just from a female standpoint, we had female characters who had significant roles, who were independent, who had things to say, points of view to be presented. So to that extent, I didn't have anything to mark down that way. You know, it's British. there, There aren't necessarily any tokenism and shallowness to all of their situations. I do think that most of the action, though, is male led. 
as far as that, like the unrequited love situation is a man. The guy seeking basically American honeys is a man. The, really, other than maybe Laura Linney's storyline, everything else is somewhat male-dominated, male-centric. And that being said, I could give you that none of the female characters is necessarily short-shifted, per se. I think the Natalie character kind of looks a little bit weird, but even that has an element of body shaming that I don't think would necessarily be acceptable in a normal sense, and they kind of do a good job of highlighting that. I mean, he offers to send the SAS after her her ex-boyfriend for calling her thick thighs or something to that effect. I mean, I do appreciate that they sought to highlight a lot of different forms of love, family, and relationships, even beyond the normal romantic sense. But again, if this were made now, it would at least have one homosexual relationship. The cast would be more than 90% white. And it doesn't really help that even the family version of this, you can't probably watch until you're at least 13 because for the uh, potential of children asking, what the hell is Martin Freeman's character doing? So I, I ended up at a six just because... Maybe I was a little tougher on this one than normal, but uh, that does end at an average of a seven for that one. All right, rewatchability. So this is one of my favorites. I'll go first. Straight 10. I watch this at least twice a year, if not three times. This is one of those that if I'm like really sad or depressed always makes me feel better. This one is absolutely one of my favorites. It's going to be a straight 10. It was always going to be a straight 10. I, I hemmed and hawed and whatever i'm i'm gonna just go 10 because really yeah i'll watch it if it's on all right i think i think one i think last christmas i ended up putting it on when you weren't around so interesting i guess i never would have expected that all right so then finally uh we had audience score we had an 85 percent from google users only a 72 percent from rotten tomato users uh Kind of an odd one for me, but that ends at a 7.85 average for that. So uh, let's just recap quickly. We had a 5.25 for Legacy, 4.75 for Impact Significance, 6.5 for Novelty, 7 for Classicness, and a 10 for Rewatchability, with a 7.85 for Audience Score for a final total of 41.35. And that will currently put it between Best Picture winners, The Artist, and Rocky on the list. Mm. Okay. Not what I would have expected, but that's the fun of doing the list. Yes. All right, remaining questions for you. I already gave one. Just, I guess, what ended up happening between uh, Emma Thompson and Ellen Rickman as far as their marriage. I know you highlighted that when we watched it together over Thanksgiving, the scene between them at the end and they seem somewhat estranged and I've taken different perspectives on it each time I've probably watched the film whether they're trying to work it out or they're not I mean I I think having talked uh, a lot of people through a similar situation because this is about the point or the stage in my life where I think people that got married in their early 20s start to have some of these situations and so I've had at least friends, co-workers, or other things going through it, this tends to be somewhat normal in the course of things. Not necessarily that you'd necessarily do anything physical, but I think the hardest part to swallow is the emotional infidelity 
if, if I can put it that way, the I'm not this everything to this person anymore. And whether you can reconcile that with how your relationship has to redevelop and change and evolve as you kind of move forward. Because, I mean, realistically, I'm a much different person at 31 than I was at 21. Had I gotten married at 21, I have no idea where I'd be right now or who I'd necessarily be with. And it's going to be very different and difficult. And I think there's been a reexamination of when you get married earlier on and the time type of things that you will have to deal with by the time you get to your early to mid-30s and why people are either getting married later or having their second marriages probably by the time they're in their 30s. So it, it's a very difficult question, and I think that's probably the most complicated relationship out of any of them, per se, throughout the course of this movie. It's also, again, the one that you kind of have a slight bittersweetness at the end of the movie. It's not the one we're meant to focus on, but probably is the one with the most depth and honesty about it of any of these stories. For me, I had another one. Uh, does Sarah ever try to get back with Carl? Okay. I mean, you kind of leave it open-ended. They kind of slightly answer it by they have a kind of awkward exchange again, but they clearly both like each other if... Yes, she did have that missed opportunity per se, but you'd think at some point they would at least have a, a different conversation about what happened since it got up to that point. I don't think they're just going to let it kind of go by. Okay. Anything else for you? Nope, I'm good. All right, remaining thoughts for the week. Just uh, everybody enjoy the holiday season and... Uh... I'm, I'm trying. I'm unfortunately having to head out of uh, town for a few days for uh, business, but uh, and it's been a very hectic time in my life uh, in general for uh, reasons that I don't need to go into, but it, it's time to reflect and just to try to remember what's really important in life. Agreed. We have Die Hard and It's a Wonderful Life left for this season that we're going to be capping off already season two and we're going to have i think it'll be 96 total episodes by the time we're done with 2021 here we'll have been doing the show for gosh this will basically be because we started the last week of february in 2020 essentially if you count that then it would be what 22 months so far yeah and both shows are going to be hitting the century mark here pretty quickly it's interesting how far we've come with all of this. I know we're going to have a recap show coming up here to start season three and kind of looking forward into what we have. Obviously, the first month of the season is going to be defined by a few of our favorites that we want to get into the first hundred or so on the list. And then our hundredth episode is going to be, I don't know exactly what we have planned for it quite yet, but I think there's going to be some different things that we probably should do to kind of celebrate it a little bit. Because that is, it is significant, having 50, 75, 100, any of these. And we have a lot of movies to cover yet. I know we planned this out for doing it, but potentially like 500 different movies. And with revisits and all of the rest of that, this could continue on in perpetuity for quite a long time. It's just interesting when you take a second to get out of the day-to-day -day rat race of making the show, doing the show on a weekly basis, and all of the stuff that we've had to put into it you know, how far and how much we've done to this point. 
And I know you've made comments to that in the, in the past, you know, that's a lot of episodes and, and such, but it just is kind of interesting where we're at, what movies we've covered, what new stuff that we've enjoyed, how we've relooked at different movies. And I know that one of your passions is that we want to recommend these to everybody, but if you're going to get a chance over the Christmas holiday and whether you're watching Christmas movies with family or whatever else, just enjoy what time you have here because if anything has taught us over the last two years, you may not have more of it than you think. And so it's a time to not only reflect, but be present with everything else that's going on. Just take some quiet time for yourself once in a while to appreciate everything that's, that's going on. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us and the microphones. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Next week, we have something that we've been talking to you about for a few months now, and we will be welcoming back returning guest Rob Conlon of the Recruiting Help podcast to help us cover a controversial Christmas inclusion, Die Hard, starring Bruce Willis, Alan Rickman, and Reginald Bell Johnson. You won't want to miss that one, so please watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram or Twitter at gmodepodcast. That's G-M-O-A-T podcast. All one word. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.